with Hans, everybody has found some kind of trail. Yeah. I'm talking about like a new player. Mm-hmm. New player, strong player, upcoming, doesn't even have to be upcoming actually. Just wants to boost their rating by 50 or 100 points. Cheats here and there. Mm. How are you ever going to cash Or in an person? important tournament or, so they yeah, can get a big cash prize. A big cash prize at the right time they cheat. Mm-hmm. You're not going to catch that. Okay, we're going. Alejandro, welcome to the C-Square Podcast. A pleasure to have you on uh, the show. Welcome. Well, it's nice to be here in my in my own house <laughs> doing this podcast. Absolutely. Don't tell that to the audience because they will find your house on the <laughs> internet and they will come after you. Alejandro, first of all, let's uh, start uh, with your beginnings because I think this is something that we're focusing on this podcast, right? To get to know more about you as an individual, as a chess player and just as a as a human being. So tell us about how did you start into the chess world? Well, some time ago, I was born and raised in San Jose, Costa Rica. So I learned chess through my family. My dad taught me most of the rules. We weren't entirely clear on en passant, but uh, <laughs> we learned most of them. Uh, then when I was seven years old, my mom found this ad on the newspaper about a chess tournament, and we really didn't know what a chess tournament was. We went, we checked it out, and I kind of fell in love with the game and the world and everything. Uh, my dad and I started more or less studying, uh, devoured every book that I could get. Of course, this is pre-internet era, and I became a relatively strong player in Costa Rica. We had a brief uh, stint here in America. We moved for like six, seven months to Florida. Didn't really work out, so we went back to Costa Rica. And uh, I was a professional player once I finished sixth grade, because that's the time in Costa Rica where you can be homeschooled. And I did some programming classes here and there, but I was mostly focused on chess. Got my IM title at 13, got my GM title at 15. It was a lot of effort, it was a lot of suffering, there was a lot of travel. Uh, it was tough on my family and on myself. I think that's true for every grandmaster that's making their norms uh, at a young age. I got my title at 15, and almost immediately after, I started applying for colleges. Um, kind of a 15-year-old midlife crisis. I wanted to go back to school, see what I was missing out on socially and many other aspects. So I went to University of Texas at Dallas, where I met you. <laughs> um, and, and we'll get that uh, to there in just a second. But first of all, let's stay within your youth, because yeah. you mentioned that you, you come from Costa Rica originally, which yeah. doesn't necessarily have a huge chess culture. Well, that's, right? a very, that's a very mild way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had when I was growing up in Costa Rica, we had two international masters, and they were like the sacred cows of Costa Rican chess. They were so good compared to everybody else. Uh, we hadn't had a GM visit us in decades. Uh, I actually didn't play a grandmaster until I was 14. So that's how little chess culture we had. Uh, we had this Capablanca chess club that we would go in the center of the city and we'd play blitz and, you know, it was just a blitz, a blitz joint basically. And, but it's how I grew up. I grew up kind of a coffee house player. I did whatever I could when it came to books. I was able to devour whatever I could get my hands on. But it wasn't much. Every time that we would travel outside of the country, go to a tournament, we'd come back with a suitcase full of books uh, because it was valuable to us. And I mean, we didn't have the opportunity of going down the street and hiring a grandmaster. We didn't have the opportunity of going down the street and you know playing in the Marshall Chess Club or something along those lines. I was very isolated when it came uh, to chess compared to everybody else, really. I mean, the only access we had to chess realistically was Cuba. And who was helping you? In my my dad. Beginnings. That that was it. My dad and I we were really a, a team. I I did. Was he a good player? 
Nah, I don't think he knows all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I think by now he does, but uh, you know, I would I would estimate his strength at like twelve hundred. Uh, you, you said the first time you played a grandmaster was at fourteen, but you were also a grandmaster at quite a young age. That there was a uh, between the time that I played Morozovich was my first grandmaster, which was October two thousand two, and my last norm, which was November two thousand three. It was about a year and a month since I played my first GM until I became GM myself. That must be some sort of record. Between <laughs> like playing a top, a very strong player. Morozovich was a top player. He was number three in the world. A very strong player. Yeah. He was number three at the world, in the world at the time that you played him. Yeah, and we, we drew in Slovenia. The first time I ever played a GM was number three in the world, and when I drew with White uh, in an exchange French. Which tournament was that? The Olympiad in Bled. Ah, okay. Yeah. Were you playing yeah. board one? No, back then I was playing board three for Costa Rica. Board three. Yeah, okay. because uh, we ordered our team like bef way before the issues, like the ratings came out. I don't know. I was board three. Mm. It didn't really matter. I mean, it was good at the end because I drew Morozovich. So, but were you the highest rated? In the I don't remember. I mean, I think that I was, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Probably our first board was slightly higher, higher rated. Uh, I think the top three boards were all around 2400. Very flat. cool. Very cool. Yeah. And who was giving you support at that time? Because um, going and playing tournaments is not easy. Yeah, it not at all. Takes a lot of effort. Takes a lot of support takes a lot of uh, financial support as well and as you were mentioning in costa rica you don't have as many sponsors and as much of a culture of chess right so you coming in and being good at chess doesn't mean anything yeah to the costa rican sponsors well it started becoming a thing when i started to get international recognition after i played Morose, which i started after i started getting my norms it became clear that i was very good at it and it's rare for Costa Rica to, you know, have like a promising talent at anything, anything, especially anything that's not soccer, which is where almost all of our sponsorship goes to. I got very lucky. Um, basically, <laughs> there was a chess fan. He was a relatively strong chess player in Costa Rica whose main profession was being a dentist. And one of his uh, clients was the CEO of GBM, which is an IBM subsidiary in Latin America. And... Uh, they were just talking about me. Like an article came out in the newspaper and they were like, wow, this is really cool. And we would like to sponsor uh, this, this player's journey to GM. So I started with the GBM. They sponsored my travels for myself and one of my parents. So it was still difficult financially, but at least I had uh, my expenses covered. And that's what allowed me to travel and make norms because it's impossible to make norms in Costa Rica. It's not like America where you have all these Charlotte GM norms and Louis GM norm tournaments. I mean, I had to travel. There was no other way. And I got lucky that I got that sponsorship. Uh, we had this goal uh, when I was 14 that they would sponsor me until I made GM. And we expected to make GM before 18 years old. Uh, we didn't expect that mm -hmm. I would make it <laughs> the next year. <laughs> And at 14, I think you were mentioning in one of your podcasts, uh, previous podcasts, uh, you got the international master title, but your rating wasn't 2400 yet. It was 2250. But at the same time, you didn't actually know where you stand. How did you yeah. figure out where you stand? Uh, trial and error, I think. That's what, one of the reasons that I went to this Olympiad. And one of the reasons I played World Youth in 2002 was to actually figure out how good we were. Uh, because I had gotten the IM title in something that's called a subzono. It's not something that's very known to American chess players, but there are zones in inside FIDE. And to get to the World Cup, you actually have to go through a process. In Costa Rica, you go through a national championship. National championship go through the subzonal, which is Central America. That opens up to the zonal, which includes also the Caribbean, Venezuela, Colombia, a few other countries. So it becomes stronger and stronger until eventually you get to the World Cup. 
uh, if you score a certain amount of points in the subzonals, you get an IM title. Like, here you go. No norms, no nothing. And that's the way I got mine. Uh, my first international rating was 2288, and I was an IM. So clearly, I wasn't very sure if I was that strength. So I kept training, and I kept training. I went to Slovenia. I went to the World Youth, uh, where I had okay results. It was clear that I was at least IM strength, but unclear how much stronger than that I was. And then, well, I just continued training until I made my title. But that big game against Morozevic, that must have given you a lot of confidence. You know, it was kind of weird. I didn't know what to expect coming into the game. It was, after all, my first uh, Grandmaster. It was my first Olympiad. It was my first tournament in Europe. It was like a lot of firsts. Uh, actually, it was the first tournament I wore eyeglasses in. Mm. <laughs> and it was a fascinating struggle, that entire game. I felt like I was getting outplayed, outplayed, outplayed. He sacrificed an exchange on F3. I was like, yeah, I saw that. I didn't think it was so strong. And my position just became really bad. But somehow he let go, and I started to take over the initiative. And at some point, like I have a mating attack, and this is when there's huge crowd. It's around the table, including Gary. He's like actually looking at the game because it's his team, and it, it was all very nerve-wracking. It, it feels like a dream, but it was very exciting, and it definitely gave me the confidence that I can do something in this game. I have similar memories about my my first Olympiad, where it was like the first time I I played top players. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my case, it was Aronian. Adams, Laco, and I was I was a bit older than you were in, in 2002, but roughly the same age. Um, and it was like I, I lost a lot of those games, but it was still a great experience. I mean, for you, it must have been even more amazing because you you also drew uh, the game, and and uh, I mean to to play a player of that strength like Morozevich was such a legend. Yeah, Morozevic was actually like one of the players I most looked up to because his style was so cool. His style was so fun. He was crossing barriers, and he seemed to be like the next upcoming, maybe even uh, title contender mm -hmm. back in 2002. People forget how good uh, Moro yeah. was at the time. For me, it was all very exciting. I mean, the thing is, we didn't have opportunities. A lot of people that grow up in America, they're kind of used to seeing a grandmaster. Even if it's not playing them, they go to the Marshall Chess Club, they go to the St. Louis Chess Club, whatever. There's tons of grandmasters. I mean, look at St. Louis. There's 25 grandmasters living here, at least. But this is a recent development in, Saint, in the United States as a whole. But like, there's always been... When the, I was growing up, this wasn't the case at all in the U.S. Yes and no, but there was at least a possibility. I mean, imagine that you're in Costa Rica. You're not even like one country away from seeing a grandmaster. Mm -hmm. You have to travel hours on an airplane yeah. to reach one. Uh, it's just really very difficult. Uh, like if I want to consult somebody, I can't just go to, you know, some <laughs> somebody local and be like, oh, I'll pay $100 just for them to fix my... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or drive like eight hours to Serbia from Romania and Something get like, like a grandmaster right. level training. Yeah, I mean, being in Europe, definitely that helped because also we also had this European championships uh, yeah. happening all the time, uh, European uh, individual championships. Uh, yeah, like for, for example, for me, it didn't make sense to play any of the youth events. Yeah, like, exactly. I, I, get, I would get no practice from it, right? Yeah. This is the same reason that, for example, Hikaru played a couple of Pan Americans yeah. and that was it. How many world use did you play? I played one. Just one? I played one. I mean, I played the one in 2002, and then it wasn't worth it, because when you live in Costa Rica, I mean, going to Greece, <laughs> it's not easy, you know? I Back think I played then, 20. You played 20? No 20, you yeah. played 20? 20 Between youth? European and world youth? Yeah. Oh, wow, wow. that's crazy. Years, yeah. No, I played, I played two, if you want to count it that way, because I did mm -hmm. play the Pan American Youth yeah. in two, 1998. I won that one, and... Then I played World Youth in 2002, and that was it. Because people don't realize, but this World Youth Championship, even though it's meaningful, it's not that meaningful. 
it's great that you're a world champion. It helps with sponsorship and stuff, but not because you're world champion is it under 16 or 14 or 12 or whatever. Is it an absolute indication that you will be a top player? I mean, we yeah, we we see that. Like, I don't think Magnus ever won a world uh, youth championship. Is, no. Uh, I, I know there's like a famous one where he was playing with uh, with Jan in the same tournament. That was uh, that was 2002. I was there. We were that, there. That was, we were, yeah, we were both <laughs> playing that one. It was like near Crete, right? Yes. And I th- did did Jan win that? I want to say that Jan won, or maybe it was on Draken. I think it was one of them. Jan won. Yeah. I think Jan won that one, but I, I might be incorrect. MVL was also playing. I think Dingleran was playing. It was kind of a sick tournament. I think Matlakov played in that one at my age group. Uh, I, re- I Nepo won that one. It, it must Nepo, have been. Nepo won yeah, as well. Nepo, yeah. That's what I want to say. Nepo, yeah. I think Howell was also in that one. Mm-hmm. Magnus was definitely in that one. Maybe Maxim as well. Yeah, Maxim was there. Because 1990 is the crit, like, of all eras or even years in chess, like, 1990 is by far the strongest. Going so back strong. as far back as you can in history. Or, it, it's or, funny how it works like that, right? Because if you think about certain years, it's like a crop of wine. Sometimes they're really good and sometimes, <laughs> I mean, we kind of got spoiled. How's your year? Oh, it's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. Absolutely. I mean, if you compare to like 90 or 91 compared to 88, 88, we have like some decent players, like, but nobody outstanding. Like, I think right now Mamedov is our highest rated mm-hmm. 1988 Ralph Mamedov from Azerbaijan yeah and we've got he was 2700 at some point so not too bad but we haven't had like a 2750 but if you go one year back then you have Nakamura in 1987 we're sandwiched we're sandwiched between 87 <laughs> which is really strong <laughs> and then 8990 that's super strong who, who was born in 1989 I think who was I born? can't think of anyone 1990 is just 90s crazy. full right then it's so, 88 89 that was not so great yeah, yeah maybe 89 yeah 89 I can't think of anyone 91, 90, 91, yeah, of no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another disaster, yeah. <laughs> you have Le Quang Liam in 91. Yeah, actually, Le Quang, I think, uh, is Shanklin 91 as well? Or is he 92? I think he, I think Sam is also 1991. Yeah, yeah so you see this, you see a lot of these world youths and you can see that there's interesting crop coming up and you see yeah. the people that are going to be strong. But it didn't necessarily mean that going to these tournaments, even with a guarantee that you win it, was worth it. Because nobody was paying my tickets. Like, for example, once my GBM... So you weren't getting any sponsorships for that one? Yeah, once my GBM sponsorship ended for other reasons... I just, nobody was paying me to go to this World Youth. Like, I paid my tickets to the Olympiad because I wanted to play a good tournament. But when you think about it, that's crazy, right? Like, how can your Olympic committee not organize the team? Or how can your federation not organize? But people don't realize that most most chess players' experience, not like the elite, but most chess players' experience is like this. Your federation is not very good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any money. Uh, sending people to the Olympiad will bankrupt them. And you're suddenly like, well, I want to go, but that means like going out, giving simuls, finding the money, finding the tickets. Mm-hmm. I remember going to the Calvia Olympiad in 2004 and the morning of the first round, not knowing if we had a full team. Mm. Like we, we were just not 100% sure that we had four people. I, I've seen this with like various teams because usually chess federations don't have so much money mm-hmm. or sometimes the money just goes to <laughs> certain, certain places that it shouldn't. And like I remember once... Mexico was playing in 2016 Olympia. This, right. this got a, like became a famous story because Maurice was coaching the Ivory Coast. Maurice Ashley, right? Yes. And they were playing the Ivory Coast, and normally Mexico against Ivory Coast is not a much of a competition, right? No. But within like the first, I don't know how many minutes, uh, Ivory Coast was up 
2-0 because Mexico's team hadn't made it yet. And I think only two of their boards made it to that match. Yeah, I think Mexico is one of those clear examples of a federation that has gotten better. But if we talk about the Federation of Mexico like six, seven years ago, and you're an upcoming player, or even even further before that, when we had like Leon Hoyos coming up as a, as a young and strong player, this is not a federation that has the capacity of supporting that. Mm-hmm. This doesn't, they don't have the capacity of saying like, oh, let's get you a trainer, let's get you resources, let's go bring you to tournaments so you can get good. You have to do it all on your own. And I mean, when you have a federation that can't even properly buy tickets to the Olympiad, and I'm not, in this particular case, I'm not singling out Mexico. So many federations yeah. where like the reality is that people go to the Olympiad one week before without tickets, one week before not really knowing if they're going. And it's great that some, you know, some federations are very well organized. Some federations are very professional. Some federations actually pay their players, but it's not always like that. It's, it's very widespread besides the really big chess countries like mm-hmm. I don't know, United States, Russia, China. I mean, you don't really get federations that are able to give much money to their to their players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's like limited to to a few countries it's, it's actually more the i would say the it's, rule than the it's exception. The, exactly i would say that and it's something that's been changing gradually it's something that fide does better now uh, i know that fide pays for a lot of the low income uh type of federations to attend the olympiad and uh, it's beneficial for everybody but that was a fund that didn't exist not that long ago it's a fund that prevented a lot of teams from uh, from reaching the olympiad which is mm-hmm. in many ways one of the few avenues that these federations have to meet grandmasters, meet resources, meet new people, see how the world of chess actually works. That's very interesting because I hear you can not necessarily complain, but we used to complain about the Romanian Chess Federation. But now that you're telling me about how Costa Rican Federation (laughs) um, used to operate, I mean, I was lucky because in the Romanian Chess Federation, if you were winning the national championship, national junior championship, you at least were getting one tournament paid, either the world youth or the European youth. And then I also had some other sponsors. I had the club that I was playing for throughout the year, and that kind of helped me play both world youth and European youth because I was winning those youth competitions quite easily. Were you even playing those youth competitions? Because I would assume the competition wasn't that. No, as, as I said, I played 2002 and that was it. No, no, no. The the national ones. Were you playing oh, national ones? I mean, I became under twenty champion when I was nine. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of. No, I actually didn't even play the national championship because it made no sense. Yeah. At some point, for a few years, when I was still Costa Rican Federation, they rewrote the ways that you can qualify for the Olympic team. Mm. They were like, in the top four players of the national championship qualify for the Olympic team. Plus Grandmaster Alejandro Damir. <laughs> that, was the, that, was the rule. So, that was the rules of the Federation. <laughs> because it made no sense for me to like fly back and play the national championship for like two weeks against an average rating of like 2150. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there'll be a few IMs which are strong and that I still have to beat. But the rest of the tournament is just like donating rating. How many Grandmasters does Costa Rica have right now? We currently have one. Bernal Gonzalez got uh, his Grandmaster title after I switched federations. So they regained their one GM. And that's the only grandmaster in Central America currently. Wow. Actually, I think it's the only norm. That's amazing. Wow. You, I think people think it's amazing because they don't know how most of the world works. Mm. Like in America, you see a GM, it's like whatever, you know. <laughs> I don't even know this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you go to certain areas and it's it's difficult. It's just 
people first underestimate how difficult it is to be GM. Second, there's no like school of chess. Third, there's nobody telling you, oh, this is the mistakes I made. You shouldn't make this mistake. You should do this. Or like how to plan tournaments, where to go to tournaments. I mean, you, you're a grandmaster norm seeker in Costa Rica. Where is your closest norm? Oh, it's not it's so easy anymore now. Mm -hmm. Like, well, mm -hmm. now I have to fly. Now mm -hmm. there's considerations of visa. Where where am I going to stay? Where's the hotel? Like, there's so many more aspects to it than oh, you know, it's it's July. How about we drive to Philadelphia for the World Open, and I'm bound to play a GM, right? Yeah, this has traditionally been an issue for let's say young players trying to get norms because not only do you have to play well, like you have to get a certain performance rating, and if you're a good player, then you can get that. But you have to play certain people from a certain amount of countries, mm -hmm. a certain amount of GMs. And if you don't have those resources, then your only option is either to become like a 2550 FM or IM or to travel somewhere. And even to get to 2550, I mean, it's also about who you play. And you don't get better by playing 2200s all mm -hmm. the time. You have to actually face competition that's higher than you. And that is expensive. But now with all the online resources, maybe that's a bit different. People can get really strong. Kids can get really strong playing online. It's gotten much better. It's gotten much better. There's resources. I mean, things like Chessable didn't exist. Even mm -hmm. Skype Skype lessons didn't exist back then. All we had was ICC and like text message based ICC, right? Yeah. Like no voice, no nothing. Um, so it's gotten better. I mean, I also think that I got strong because of ICC. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I am telling you all this story that I lived in Costa Rica. I didn't play GMs. I mean, the only practice I got was logging online and hoping that mm -hmm. I got 3000 blitz so that I could actually play I strong players. Once Gata alluded to something similar. Which not not that he got stronger because he was like got to be a top player before the days of that, but that he helped a lot of American players specifically like let's say Hikaru who was mm -hmm. up and coming at the time that Gato was super super strong, um, become better by by giving practice against a top player, and I don't know if I necessarily agree that Nakamura wouldn't still become a top player whether he was playing Gato or not, but it helps to get that experience against really good players. I think it's necessary. I mean, look at all these grandmasters that come up and like, how do they get good? They get good by losing to the good players first. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to learn how it works, how it works at the top. You needed that feeling of like, oh, this is completely different than what I thought chess was. I mean, if you compare the strength of a 2200 and a 2500, it's so vast. The difference is so vast that if you consistently play a 2500, you're eventually going, like, almost by osmosis, going to like learn something from these games, even if it's just how to handle yourself on the board. So yeah, it, it's it was a difficulty. It's gotten better because of the internet, but still nothing nothing like practice. And you understood those difficulties early on, mm -hmm. right? And you were bound to seek opportunities somewhere else. Yeah. And then you found the United States. How did that came about? Well, I wouldn't jump it like that. I would say that for a few years, my family and I, we fought that struggle. We fought that idea that, well, we have some sponsorship. Where can we go? My mom was a wizard about finding tournaments mm. wherever she could. Uh, we traveled everywhere. I mean, I traveled to Europe. I traveled to Mexico, to Cuba, to wherever Latin America had a tournament. I had a visa. So the few times I could go to America for a worthy event, I, I tried to go. Back then, uh, chess scene in America was a lot more barren than it is nowadays. But I still traveled as much as I could. I would go to like, you know, I wouldn't miss like the Aeroflot Open. Mm. And the Aeroflot Open, it's really hard to get to when you're in America. You go to New York and New York, you go to Moscow. It's still a very long flight. When you're in Costa Rica, you go, you do San Jose, Venezuela, Venezuela, Italy. And from Italy, you grab a flight to Moscow. And it takes about 40 hours. And what about no like going through Cuba? 
Was that was that a possibility? It, it was just as long. Just as long. Yeah, yeah. it was just as long, or it, it was more money, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't really matter. Like when I went to Libya for the World Championship, it's like a fifty-hour trip. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like, that was in two thousand four, right? Two thousand four, right? So, eventually, I came to America not so much for chess opportunities. I was already established GM. I wanted something different. Mm. Uh, I wanted to experience something new. I wanted to see what school life was like. Uh, I sat down with my parents and we talked about it. And we decided that, yeah, maybe I should go to college just to experience it and see how it goes. I have to say that originally we wanted me to go to Costa Rica University, but unfortunately in Costa Rica, there's no such thing as homeschooled. Mm. <laughs> and this homeschool, let's put it, was a strong word for what I was doing. <laughs> but uh, they have no problem in America. You know, they gave a, a bunch of SATs, the TOEFL, they had some interviews. And uh, more than one university gave me an offer of a scholarship. Did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you, the universities? It was a little bit of both because I was already interested, but I had a couple of friends that went to UTD. So back then, Daniel Fernandez, which I knew from Florida, went to UTD. So he kind of hooked me up with people there. And I think the collegiate chess team started like, what, 98? Was that the first year? I mean, something like that. I was not so far from one of the first uh generations i wasn't the first generation but i was like the second or third generation of of actual collegiate chess players on sponsorship and back then there were only two universities university of texas at dallas and university of maryland at baltimore county umbc Uh, but that was it we didn't have the explosion of collegiate chess that we have right now and how old were you when you went to university i just turned 17 when i were pretty young i was pretty young yeah i mean i guess (laughs) uh i was kind of done with my chess career by that point um, I didn't want to play. Hi, this is Soy. <laughs> Hello, uh, Soy. <laughs> I didn't want to play. I felt it was very stressful. I felt that I was limiting my opportunities, and I felt I wasn't learning a lot of things. At seventeen, you already felt like your career was over. I didn't feel like my career was over. I felt like I could continue if I wanted. Like I definitely thought I was strong enough, and I had the opportunities. But I had, especially, I remember being in an aeroflot surrounded by all these like really smart people and thinking like can't everybody do something better for mm. like the world and i was kind of disillusioned by chess for a little bit but i came around to it i mean i i think that i burned myself out uh i played consistently i traveled consistently my social life was literally logging on icc and talking to my chess friends and I think we all experienced that at some point where like you don't have any friends except for computer usernames and screens that you see maybe twice a year. What was we, your rating at that point? Sorry. No, it's um I, I think we all that all have that sentiment at some point as chess players. Like we're studying this incredibly complex game, but it is an essentially futile <laughs> endeavor where we're we're trying to improve our chess and maybe trying to discover some new things in chess, but it is still a board game. And, uh, and yeah, I think a lot of people... Uh, I even heard this like a long time ago when I was a kid. There was this uh, chess sponsor in, in New York named Stanley Drunkenmiller uh, who was very interested in chess. And when my father told him uh, that we're going to, to pursue chess full-time or, or at least think about that, he was like... I, like why he could do so many better things with his life than chess. And at some point you have that thought when you're like growing up and you're like, do I still want to do chess? Like I'm really good at it, but maybe I could be more 
useful to the world in another uh, area. And what did you study at the university? Okay, that's funny because <laughs> with all the segue saying that I studied, I have a master's degree in video game design doesn't sound like the best. <laughs> but I actually started as physics. Uh, people, physics, yeah. not a lot of people know this, but I started uh, working in a nanotechnology lab. Mm. It was the first thing that drew me to UTD. A lot of my friends uh, worked in the lab as well. Uh, yeah, the whole thing, like the whole physics. And at some point, I kind of liked the art degree better. Mm. Uh, it was a very nice program. They had a UTD called Arts and Technology. Brand new, uh, experimental kind of, where they taught you how to make video games. And I did a lot of that. I did that for, I mean, the entirety of my bachelor's and master's. I worked for a very big company, which was one of my goals to have my name on the credit of a game that sold at least 10 million copies. And I did that. So which game was it? Diablo 3. Okay. So I worked for Blizzard for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did a lot of work on educational games in Dallas and in UTD. Uh, so I did, you know, I did dabble on it for quite a bit. Um, but yeah, it, it, it put a big stop on the chess career because I wasn't so dedicated. I did, I did play chess, but you, you know, it's not the same. You know, you're in school, you play here once in a while. Yeah. I mean, some of the tournaments are like party tournaments and I wasn't taking it very seriously. I think that like some other players they enter that college life, like very talented players, and then they are at a cross crossroads even when they're in that. Like I remember Wesley went to university at some point and, and people thought that he would, you know, stop playing professional chess because now he's getting a degree or whatever. But then at some point he made the decision to get back into professional chess. So did you also have that moment when you were in university? Like maybe I want to get back into prof professional chess? Absolutely. But for me, it was an actual choice. I feel like for a lot of people in that go to college, in one of these chess colleges. For some, they do have this opportunity where they have two very strong options. And for some, I think that they go to college, but once they finish college, the realistic only option is to go back to chess. Mm -hmm. uh, it is what it is. I had a real choice, uh, but I really had to decide. And it came around like 2000, well, like 12, 13, something like that, where I started applying to a lot of jobs that I wanted, but <laughs> the industry, let me put it, the gaming industry back then and since then, it's tough. Mm. It's a lot of hours. It's not a lot of freedom. You really have to love your job, which I did, but it's just your job. I mean, you're going to be expected to work crunch time. You're going to be expected to work for uh, unrealistic hour expectations. It's just the way it works. And I like my freedom. I like travel. Uh, chess was coming up in America because of the St. Louis Chess Club. So it became like a real alternative. When I was graduating um, with my bachelor's in 2009, the chess club of St. Louis was just starting. Like we didn't know if it was going to be big, if it was going to be small. We didn't have no idea. But besides that, it was clear that American chess was going nowhere. It's still like a huge leap of faith, right? To uh, just accept the fact that you're going to be a chess professional when you do have the options of working for a company like Blizzard, right? Yeah, I never saw it like that. I mean, I understand that it is at the end of the day, but I also felt that you have to do one or the other. Mm. Like, I couldn't really balance both. So it was a decision that I wouldn't say it was made for me, but it just had to be done. And one was, at that point, so much more appealing than the other. How are you making your money at that point, once you got out of college? Did you start teaching? Did you start uh, traveling and playing tournaments? How are I you mean, making your money? I taught a lot. Actually, that's not true. I thought a little bit, but I did 
I wore a lot of hats in the chess world, especially mm. back then. First of all, I was a pretty successful chess player. Uh, even though I wasn't so strong, I feel that there are players that are even stronger than me that never win tournaments. Like, you know, you'll be like 2,600, but what have you ever won? And it, they can't give you an answer. Like, they've never won a single tournament. And that translates to money. Whereas I was a very inconsistent player, but through the inconsistency, I had some great tournaments. Like, I tied for first at World Open. I got second at the U.S. Championship 2013. I won the U.S. Open once. I got second the next year. That's, you know, like 10 grand here, 8 grand here, uh, 7 grand there. So we, like, uh, we referenced that uh, U.S. Championship where you played God in the final in that's the right, previous yeah. uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we talked about I that. I think so. Yep, yep. Because we were talking about bidding oh, yes. on Armageddon <laughs> games, and you played an Armageddon against God in that tournament, right? Yeah, that was terrible. Uh, the way that worked, you probably covered it last time, but we had a 45-minute time control, and you could bid down to get the color you wanted. Uh, I don't think the organizers realized that 45 minutes is like ridiculous, <laughs> and that if you wanted to bid for your color... Uh, it wasn't easy. And I, I had a tough choice. I How had, much did you bid? I bid 19 minutes and 45 seconds, which beat his bid of 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> his bid was 20 minutes? That's what I heard. I, oh I, I don't remember the exact, but I think it was something that's like so that. That's so risky. I, I mean, both of your bids. I, I, and my, my feeling is that the that's, thing that's is, very little time. The thing is, I really wanted to be black because mm-hmm. it was, I had been surviving against Gata so far. Like in the 2013 championship, I pulled a miracle and survived with black in the standard time controls. Um, and then when we came to the rapid playoffs, I survived with white, I survived with black, <laughs> but definitely wasn't putting any pressure. And I was thinking, well, maybe I can survive one more time, but I'm definitely not beating this guy. Uh, I mean, his black version of the Spanish was way too solid for me to do anything. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'll take 1945 with black, I'll take my chances, but I got a bad position from the opening and didn't recover. You said that was in 2008? 13. Oh, sorry, in 13. Mm-hmm. Ah, so so Gada had just three years ago played a world championship qualifier against Apollov. So he was he still had the openings of a top player yes. in every sense. Like he was 2770 at that time, right? Or I think he was like just above 2700. I think that he had like a bad period and then he mm-hmm. came, he bounced ah, back. Okay, so that was near the end of the year. Yeah. I really don't remember. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I played him... And I remember him being around like high 2700s. He was still he might have like been, Grand Prix and all these top events. He might have been 2740, mm-hmm. 2750. I don't know. This was so long ago that yeah. I remember him. Like like uh, Morozovic said at one point, and I don't have a rating. I have a name. You know, I don't remember what his rating was. I was playing Kamsky. Kamsky's Kamsky. Gotta had another version of saying that. He said, I'm a famous <laughs> something legend. <laughs> something legend. I was, playing, <laughs> I was playing one of those, yes. Yeah. That's actually how I remember Alejandro. Uh, you were mentioning winning tournaments, and that's how I remember meeting you. Mm-hmm. I came to the University of Texas at Dallas 2010, and I met you. I saw you coming. I saw this like cocky walk <laughs> of this young guy, and I asked the coach, who's that guy? And he was like, yeah, that's Alejandro Ramirez. He's a grandmaster. He just won the U.S. Open. And of course, you're like shit talking everybody at the chess room and playing, uh, playing bullet, playing blitz and things of that nature. It was a funny, funny time at the university for sure. Now, as we enter your later stage of uh, your life, I do want to uh, <laughs> watch something with you. And we were discussing sponsors as well. At one point, you had a, is it a salsa so commercial? It's, you, you started... it's kind of a cooking sauce. Oh, let's. There we go. Vivir solo en tierras tan lejanas me hace extrañar más a mi país, a esa Costa Rica que he representado tantas veces y con tanto orgullo. El ajedrez cambió mi vida 
pero nunca lograrán cambiar mis raíces. Ni en esos momentos sin Por eso, mi mamá siempre me trae salsa y yo la llevo conmigo a donde quiera que voy. Salsa Durante 85 años, el sabor de Costa Rica. Salsa Lizano and... I do believe that we do have the salsa lisano. We do us. have we do have a bottle with us here. Yeah, Fabi, whip up the just the whip the it out. Yeah. So here's the salsa. They're not sponsoring us. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> is sponsoring. But they us. should. But, but salsa lisano, if you're out there. Fabi, you want to try it? Um, come on. Try. Well, I I think I might need a spoon. A spoon. We need a spoon. Can we get a spoon? So this is your last bottle of salsa lisano. Can well, you for find now, but this in the United States. Yeah, you can just go to Amazon.com and buy ah, it. There we go. Right. <laughs> There's so much commercial you. for this. All right, uh, I'm not gonna feed you this the sauce. <laughs> you you feed yourself. <laughs> this is. Don't Let's put your see. hand under it. I just don't want to spill on the couch. Oh, it's it's a rather thick sauce. Oh, oh okay. yeah. There it goes. There we go. All right. Here you uh, go. I'll get it. I've never tried this before. It's incredible. I use it for cooking very often. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I like it. Out of 10? Give it a 10. 10 nice. out of 10. Wow. Oh, very 10. nice. It is what it is. It's going to be difficult to beat that. All right. Well, um, so how, um, how, how did that came about? How did you uh, all right, so, got approached? I mean, I'll, I'll be kind of honest. When, when I made my GM title, it was kind of unexpected in Costa Rica, and I got a lot of media attention, like a lot. I was named Sportsman of the Year of 2003, um, so I was pretty famous. I mean, I was, like, really famous. People would recognize me on the streets. Uh, people would stop me to take pictures or autographs or whatever, even if I was just randomly walking down the street of Costa Rica. And after I went to college, I think Salsa Lisano had this, like, series of commercials where they shot a commercial with, like, famous Costa Ricans that live abroad. Mm. Like, I think Maribel Guardia did one. Like, a lot of famous Costa Ricans, like Costa Rican soccer players that lived in Europe uh, would do a few. So I, I got to do one. <laughs> they contacted me. I had to go back home for it. But it was totally worth it. It was a fun experience. It was my first time in front of a camera. Uh, that little sound bite of 30 seconds took, like, six hours to record. <laughs> They're like, oh, more emotion, less emotion, too much, too slow. <laughs> I mean, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, they pay pretty well. And to be honest, I use it all the time. Like, before you could find it on Amazon, I would actually come back with, like, three bottles from home because I use it pretty often for my own for my own cooking. Were you actually cooking in that commercial, or was that just a photo shoot? It was just a photo shoot. Somebody actually cooked the chicken <laughs> which was really weird they took it from the oven and then they put it on the frying pan and then they were like yeah just pretend that you're okay i was like okay I had, I had a similar experience when not on a professional level but we were in um doing the chess.com commentary for the world championship match and they wanted me to cook for a bit and i was like okay i'll cook some eggs um but there was like no cooking equipment there was no oil the pan was was not non-stick and so we like put a few eggs in and and they kept sticking to the pan and we couldn't figure out the stove because it was like a stove of an airbnb and then danny like butts in there and starts scraping the eggs off the pan and he keeps adding eggs to it because we wanted to do multiple takes so at some point we had like six six <laughs> eggs frying in this pan it was the worst food that i've ever <laughs> that was actually delicious <laughs> like it was actually good because they had me like eat at the end it was actually good 
Because it was a professional chef. It was a professional chef. Yeah. <laughs> there was no professional chef with Chesel Khan, yeah? Danny, uh, Danny Wrench was our professional Danny. chef. <laughs> <Danny> <laughs> I can imagine. Excellent. Well, um, let's get closer to uh, our time. So very recently, you became sort of famous because <laughs> you uh, got this interview of Hans Niemann. Yeah. And you actually made it on Elon Musk's Twitter. Did you see that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I got it sent. I mean, I heard it was deleted since. Yeah, it was. But uh, it was nice to have that five minutes of glory. Uh, I like to think that I'm famous for other things, but <laughs> <laughs> but we will uh, we will leave it at that. No, of course. I mean, that was a big deal, and it, it's strange, right? Like it's strange how chess sometimes is at the center of certain storms mm. that you didn't imagine coming. So so when Hans got on that day. Mm -hmm. To do an interview, did you have any idea what was going to happen beforehand? I mean, I guess we should start talking about the Singfield Cup because we're going to get there eventually. Um, let me start with like how Hans got there, because I think a lot of people gave flack to the St. Louis Chess Club for inviting Hans, despite quote unquote everyone knowing that he cheated. And that's not an easy thing to say. I mean, first of all, this rumors sometimes sometimes dictate how chess operates. Like you hear something, you hear of something, and you're expected to know it. Uh, and I think that is a very bad view. Uh, I mean, when Hans... When we had a list of players that we wanted to invite for the Sinkfield Cup and St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, once Richard quit, well, why he quit, we don't care. Uh, it's not part of the conversation. We just had two, we had two vacancies suddenly. And we had maybe like a week, a week and a half to fill them up. It wasn't very long. And they gave me a list of players, and it's like, I, all five looked fine. But for a very long time, I had wanted to give Hans an opportunity. I had, of course, heard that he had cheated online. I mean, I'm very well connected, or at least like to think that I'm well connected in the chess world. And I had heard of that. And I had heard allegations that he had cheated over the board. I mean, the only issue that I had with it, and one of, a very big issue, is that I've heard of this from so many people. So many people that have been accused of cheating online. So many people that have been accused of cheating over the board. Some, and many, I would say, especially cheating online, fully justified. Like, obviously, they cheated. They've gotten caught. They've gotten banned. But especially when it comes to over the board, I've heard of so many people cheating. And some of them are, like, complete nonsense. So some of the allegations are complete nonsense. And if you want the St. Louis Chess Club to sit with a magnifying glass and look at every single talented individual that's coming up and being like, hey, you know, what are the centipone losses on this guy's 20 last games? We're not going to do that. I mean, he is clearly a very dedicated player. At that point, there was no real indication that he has cheated online. Even to this day, we don't have any proof or anything like that. And we can't work on allegations. So, so just to clarify, once Rapport withdrew from the tournament mm -hmm. and from the tour, the St. Louis Chess Club gave you the choice of different players or gave you the... That is not the case. They gave me a list of five players and mm -hmm. they said what do you think about inviting them? Like, what is your opinion? Is there any problem? Like, for example, is one of them in Russia or is one of them playing a tournament in the middle of nowhere that he can't get back, which actually was the case for one of the players. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to move quickly. Who can we invite? Who's, to, who's available? Mm -hmm. And so kind of as a chess expert in the chess club, they asked my opinion, which one of these five would be possible? I didn't invite them directly. I simply gave my recommendations. And despite some reservations based on these very thin at the time allegations that Hans cheated either online or over the board, 
uh, you decided that Hans would be an interesting choice for the tournament. I think Hans would be a great choice for the tournament. Uh, there were a lot of reasons that I thought that at the, at the time. And again, even though only a month has passed since that exact moment, uh, a lot has changed, especially on the way that people view Hans right now. People are viewing Hans with a magnifying glass, and perhaps it is natural for us right now to think of Hans as somebody that everybody's looking at. But back then, Hans was just one of many talented players that is coming up the, up, up the ranks. Everybody's kind of really focused on the Uzbeks and the Indians because these are the guys that are just either won the Olympiad or almost won the Olympiad. And nobody has really sat down and thought, okay, is Hans cheating or not? Nobody has really said that at this point. People are rumoring it, but when I got asked, what, uh, is Hans okay for an invite? Uh, he just finished the FTX Cup in Miami, where I didn't see any indication of him cheating. Mm-hmm. He got killed, yeah. He yeah. didn't really get killed. And I thought that was even the more interesting part, is that even though he lost every single match... Narrowly. He, was exactly. Narrow, yeah. He mm-hmm. lost all of them narrowly. So I thought, okay, this is an interesting player. He can take games off of good people. His mm-hmm. interviews are clearly very candid and very interesting. So at the very least, we'll get that and imagine the extent of it. <laughs> but at that point, he seemed like a fun and interesting player to bring up. Yes, of course, I had heard that he cheated. But... First but that all, was not public knowledge, and nobody knew for sure that he cheated. Since then, he acknowledged yes. the cheating online, but he didn't acknowledge they before just, that. Just rumors, allegations. They were just rumors. rumors. Yeah. Their allegations. They were pretty strong. I mean, some of them linked me to accounts of his that had been banned. Yeah. And yeah, I understand that. But nobody at that point had any clarity or any strong evidence that Hans had cheated over the board. At this point, this did not exist. This was not a talking point. This was. Something that, you know, people rumored. Actually, I had this thought at some point recently. Like, obviously a lot changed. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what we actually know, the facts, what changed between Hans pre-Sinkfield Cup, post-FTX Crypto crypto Cup, and uh, and now? I mean, everything we're... all. All of that we're basing this on is just Magnus withdrawing from the tournament and and the implications that comes with. But we we have no extra evidence that he cheated over the board. Well, we have a we now have a mountain of circumstantial evidence that's been compiled by Redditor <laughs> statisticians, <laughs> and even if they're not on Reddit, they're very close to that where they just publish something on YouTube, and then the entirety of the chess world tries to dissect it. You know. How many centipons did this guy lose? How many graphs can we compile? On, on this podcast, we would never do something like, <laughs> like circumstantial Guilty charged, analysis guys. of random games. I mean, we would never do that. <laughs> so, I mean, but that, that also opens a question that I don't know if you guys have talked about. Uh, how much evidence is enough evidence? Mm-hmm. Like, short of catching somebody red-handed, how will we ever know if somebody cheated? Well, we, we did bring this up. Um... And I think Hikaru also commented on this video. It was one of our um, live videos. Yeah. Where, or I think it was when we were speaking to Maurice. And, and he was saying, well, what's the evidence? And, and we said, yeah, but what, what is the threshold of evidence that you're willing to accept? Because it's obviously all circumstantial, but... But that's, that's accepted in a lot of... That, that can also be evidence of something, yeah. Yeah, even if it's circumstantial. Uh, but my... The other thing is, is it even... Could it even be viewed as circumstantial evidence? Like, does it even fit that uh, fit that description? Like, some of it is just people pulling out random moves from random games 
and using tools that nobody even understands, like a chess-based analysis and tool. Let me let me let me reemphasize what you said. Nobody understands this. Yeah. Like when I talk about potential of cheating, and I see a game where I suspect somebody of cheating, you have to understand there's a very select few amount of people in the chess world that actually understand why this looks unnatural, why this doesn't make sense, why these numbers don't add up. And I'm not talking about Hans here, I'm talking about any case mm -hmm. where people look at a graph and they're like, this guy's a cheater. And I'm like, well, do you even know what this graph says? Do you Did you know what a centipon loss was before Like, you knew the name Hans Niemann? Mm -hmm. Like, how often does a centipon loss happen? How often does Capablanca did it compared to Tal? Like, people that can't answer that are certainly like condemning people online. Yeah, I mean, okay, but let's say ignoring the opinions of people who don't have much authority or knowledge mm -hmm. in the matter. Uh, there are some people who also have a lot of authority and knowledge in the matter who are weighing in and who think that we're seeing something weird here. Um, but the, there are also authorities or so-called authorities in the chess world that based on my knowledge and based on my understanding of chess engines and based on my understanding of games and the people that I know in the chess world, this authority's opinion is garbage. Like, it's just... You were talking about... Ken Reagan? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that Ken Reagan is this absolute garbage, but it doesn't strike me as an algorithm that is impossible to fool. Mm -hmm. Like, we were talking about this the other day, like, a very big difference between a statistician that's trying to find some data compared to a statistician that's trying to find a cheater is that a cheater's trying to hide. Yeah. They know that there is something going after them, and they're trying to hide. You're not going to, if you're good at it, you're not going to be able to see the trail because there won't be a trail. There will be a... Because someone, someone scraped the trail and, and now there's nothing there. Or you... Or, or you if, if, let's say like you cheat randomly. Mm -hmm. Let's say that somebody doesn't even cheat consistently. Let's say somebody cheats once every three tournaments just to boost their performance once in a while. And even in those one and three tournaments, they do it in a way which is a little bit random. A little bit random, you know, here and there enough to win the game. But, but this is uh, the discussion about uh, Hans, right? Because he was well, just leveling up uh, in terms of his performance and then picking. Sure. Le leveling but, up, picking. But again, with leveling Hans, up, picking. everybody has found some kind of trail. Yeah. I'm talking about like a new player. Mm -hmm. New player, strong player, upcoming, doesn't even have to be upcoming actually. Just wants to boost their rating by 50 or 100 points. Cheats here and there. Mm. How are you ever going to catch Or in this an person? important tournament or, so they yeah. can get a big cash prize. A big cash prize at the right time they cheat. Mm -hmm. You're not going to catch that. Yeah. Well, I think, so a lot of people have said that we've been very harsh on Reagan mm -hmm. as, uh, as let's say, the analyst that Fide goes to and, and his model. Um, like, I, I don't want to be too harsh on it, but it does feel like it can be tricked. I think that Every, anybody that works in programming and works in algorithms know that every algorithm has a failure. Mm -hmm. Every algorithm that, if you know it, you can gain it. Game it somehow. Um, On the other hand, we don't want to have a false positive. Yeah, of course. False positives are so incredibly destructive, right? That you gotta err on the side of this guy's innocent. But, I mean, just, if you accuse somebody of cheating and it's a false positive with an algorithm, I mean, that's just, what can you do, right? Like, what, what would be the possibilities for the player at that point? Yeah. So for the player is screwed. I mean, they can maybe take it to court and try to argue their case, but who knows if yeah, Good luck. Yeah, you're destroyed. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. le, le, like, even if Hans, like, for example, let's say Hans is innocent. 
doesn't matter, right? Like his career is his career is pretty much over. At this point. I, I don't know if it's over. It feels like that, but it's right? like I it's so go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's ruined or anything like that. But it's been harmed. This well, are, as an organizer, who are you going to invite, Magnus or Hans? Because Magnus is no, not going to play against Hans anymore. But this is not the argument, right? This is not the argument because let's let's face it. Even though they did play the Singfield Cup, they still play different tournaments. Yeah. Um, it's not going to come down to that. What it's going to come down to is like, where is Hans going to get his opportunities? But like, they play different tournaments for the moment, right? If Hans goes to 2750, yeah. he's going to start playing the same tournaments as Magnus. Well, they still do, still do play some of the same tournaments because yeah. there are all these online tournaments that they could could play together. For example, the Chess 24 events, mm -hmm. the FTX Crypto Cup, this one, that one. Uh, they played in one recently where, where Magnus uh, won the event, but he didn't play against Hans, he, he played a move and then resigned and, and obviously caused uh, caused some extra uproar over that decision. So they even though they are different levels levels and they might play different tournaments, they are playing some tournaments and, and there is a question like, if I'm the organizer of, let's say, Vikenze, and I know that if I invite both of them, then I'm going to have my tournament uh, covered in scandal because there's going to be a forfeited game. So I have a choice between the world champion and this relative newcomer who's 2700, right? Yeah, it's just not pretty. It's just not pretty, right? And so far, we don't have any... Like, as we are doing this podcast, it's perfectly possible that one of the listeners is saying, like, yeah, I've seen enough evidence. Hans is a cheater in my views. I don't care that, you know, we don't have anything solid. And that's fine. But organizers can't, can't afford to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's something solid or there's not something solid. And at that point, we're, we're excluding a player... That we haven't yet found something solid against. But there was something solid. He cheated online. Then, there was precedent. Th then we have another conversation. There was precedent. Precedent. That is a big one, I think. That is relevant. It but is, of course, it is relevant, but we can't use online cheating to decline invitations, even if it's only for the practical reason that there are so many people that did it at this point. Some people are arguing that we should take into account online just as a word of board. But then they have to be exposed by, let's say, the website that banned them. Yeah. And then you get into legal issues, right? Correct. I mean, we have legal issues. We have like, what is the burden of proof? Certain certain websites will have different uh, burden of proof, for example. Like, I can't imagine that the Lee Chess algorithm is the exact same one as Chess.com. It's totally different. So yeah. If they're totally different, then why can this one say it's a cheater? The other one says I'm not. I mean, we have so many problems on that issue, right? Mm. And not, not to mention that what are we going to do with all the people that... That already cheated. Are we never going to invite him to tournaments again? Do they give him a two-year ban? Who decides the ban? Is FIDE going to take over this? I mean, there's so many questions. It's like a Pandora box mm -hmm. opening mm -hmm. of questions of what to do with people cheating online. That, I mean, you need like three or four more podcasts just to talk about it. Well, before the Magnus Han scandal, we had a relatively simple and easy solution to that, which was that the chess websites, because they have full authority over what happens on their website, they're free to ban whoever, and it doesn't go out. The knowledge doesn't really permeate outside of the chess website yeah. uh, and they allow the players a avenue to redemption, right? As we've seen chess.com uh, has done, but it doesn't ever influence their over the board career. Like just because you cheated on chess.com doesn't mean that you don't get invited to uh, the, you know, the Grand Prix or Grand Swiss or whatever tournament it is. Or the Singfield. But now because of the Magnus Hans uh, scandal, drama, whatever you want to call it, uh, it suddenly opened all these questions like what do you do now that we have knowledge about players cheating online because because well it's hard to imagine this knowledge would of certain players cheating would stay hidden forever because things tend, tend to get out there
But now we actually have to deal with this dilemma. It's not an easy dilemma because I think that a lot of people know some of the, the known cheaters. But there's a lot of people that we never figured out. Like there's a lot of people, as you mentioned, that were had a path to redemption, right? Like let's say that a cheater that got banned on chess.com that we all know, X player, whatever, uh, happened two years ago. And another player, Y, did the same thing, but handled it quietly. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to face different punishments because we know of one, but not the other. Well, that's the moral dilemma. Why is Hans the one who got exposed, but uh, XX player who's uh, 2700, the same exact situation, also cheated online and was caught? Why, why is that person going under the radar? That's the, the ethical dilemma we have now. It almost feels like it's an unfortunate evil. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of the way the whole Hans thing has developed in the sense that it felt that because things couldn't be said, because lawyers would suddenly be get involved, that everything was done with hearsay or with veiled threats or with veiled accusations or with tantrums. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe this was, the, this was the only way because chess players have been asking organizers to take this more seriously. Chess players have been asking uh, everyone from FIDE to the Singlest Chess Club to every, everyone to take serious measures, to take the 15-minute or 30-minute delay in a broadcast because we're just waiting to be exploited. And perhaps this needed to end at some point. And perhaps this is the beginning of the end of that. I don't know how, but just by bringing it into the limelight. Well, at least at the club, I think we're moving forward. We're going to do delay. And, and um, I think continuously. I, I can't imagine that any serious tournament yeah. won't use delay yeah. from now on. Well, besides open tournaments where it might be very difficult because of the amount of players and the, it's, you know, let's say if you have spectators too, that's mm-hmm. an additional worry. Like not all tournaments have the, um, have the privilege that the St. Louis Chess Club has where you can put everyone in a closed room and, and nobody can go in and the delay can, can uh, be put in place so nobody has access to the moves or the games. But that's not sustainable also. And I don't think it's going to be going forward. Uh, we don't have spectators at the St. Louis Chess Club right now because we're just doing renovation. But moving forward, I think we expect to receive spectators. Well, we so it's not this, right. We said that the spectators would have to check in their electronic devices, just like yeah. they would at any other sort of show, right? So you don't record things, or you know, yeah. we we see this. I'm sure that we'll think of things. I think there's a lot of details that we haven't even thought about that will eventually have to be thought and planned out. But it's a start. It's a start that we take this more seriously. It's a start that you know. There's a lot of tournaments where it's very easy to cheat and we kind of trust the players and the coaches or whatever, the staff, not to do it. And at some point, I think that's going to evaporate, that this trust has been broken and we need to realize that, yeah, we, we can't trust the players anymore. I so, think that moment is pretty much now. Go ahead. Is, is this like, so I, I think it's a good consequence that at least the cheating problem is on organizers rate and it kind of was on their radar but now they really have to take it seriously which yeah. we didn't see in the past right with some behind the doors complaints and organizers were like yeah you know there's not really much there and the public perception is what really matters to uh to these big companies right so now they have to address it but can we say that magnus did sort of a bad thing but it was also the right thing is that a weird thing to say it's not weird because i think a lot of things have to have to get ugly and i think that the amount the amount of times that players asked organizers to be better about this was too many. Mm-hmm. And at some point, this had to break. 
I mean, it's not specifically about Hans. It has nothing to do about Hans. It's the fact that players have been asking for this for years, and it just hasn't come to fruition. Our detection mechanisms at most tournaments are very basic. They're very, very basic. It's not serious. Like, yes, there will always be ways and there will always be, you can always brainstorm away, but at least make it harder. Like right now it's too easy. You've done so many interviews with players throughout your career. Did you feel anything out of the ordinary when you did the interview with Hans? Especially yeah. after the game against Dominguez, I guess. <laughs> well, against Dominguez, the interview after was definitely the big one. And Actually, let's start with the game against Magnus. After the game against Magnus, did you feel any emotion from him? Was he cold? How, how was he? How did you feel him? He was, he was weird. Mm. I don't know how to describe it, so I'll try. But this was a young man that just beat Magnus for the first time. And like, usually when you see people do that for the first time, they're like tripping over each other, like, like over themselves, actually. Like, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And Hans was a little bit like that in some ways. Like, he was disorganized. He didn't know what to say. But he defended some positions very adamantly during that interview. Some rook end games, some other stuff where you feel that he had the the arrogance of somebody that just beat Magnus Carlsen. And so I, at some point I felt that was normal. But his mannerisms in some way, some of the things he said, specifically regarding certain calculations, they're a little strange. I mean, a lot of people gave him flack for the opening, but I didn't find it to be that weird. I mean, so. I think he, he explained this after, and to me his explanation made a lot of sense. Yeah, to me that uh, one wasn't weird at all. It was it was one of the because Magnus plays the Catalan a lot. Yeah, he played it in the World Championship match, and this was sort of a Catalan offshoot with Knight C three that for, could be reached from many different move orders, and it's one of the things that could have been on Hans's radar. For me, this was not a big surprise. I mean, it was a little weird, but nothing mm -hmm. that weird. I mean, yeah. that you guessed that opening. Okay, you got lucky. Whatever, it's explainable. His game was very smooth. There were a couple of moments where he played like certain weird moves that I couldn't really understand. There's a moment where he plays like near the end. Mm -hmm. He plays like king f5 instead of like king f6 hitting the bishop. And I was like, why, why would you ever play king f5? You can you tempo the bishop. Everybody tempos the bishop. And He but, also gave Magnus uh, the opportunity to get back into the game at some point. With twice. Some twice or three times. Very long variation. But very, compl very complex and very strange. Like, not something a human's really looking at and something he didn't notice mm. or he didn't seem aware of. One was this rook ending that Magnus could have gone for where black has the connected pass pawn yes. A and B pawns. Yeah. And it's somehow a draw. It's somehow a draw because the F pawn on F5 is somehow, like, yeah. strong enough. And, and Hans was incredulous when, he, when he, you told him about this. I remember he was yes. like... How can this not be winning? Yeah, and he says that at, like a lot in different mm -hmm. positions, but in this one I kind of understood too, like why white would avoid it, why black would think I should be winning here because usually a rook and two connected pass pawns just wins, just wins yeah. against another rook. It's just there's nothing. You, even if the other king gets involved, rook and two pawns just marches up the board. So that made sense to me why he, like it was. It seemed like a very human way to let a win slip. Yeah, yeah, no, and I agree. Also, at some point there's this bishop h5 move that Magnus could have played. Mm -hmm. And it was a draw, but like who, pay, who plays bishop h5? And this was a ridiculous move. Um, Hans also was not aware of it. So I didn't find Magnus's interview that strange. He was weird because I think he's you just mean, a uh, weird kid. Hans's Hans Hans interview. Hans's interview. Hans interview after, sorry, mm -hmm. Hans interview regarding the Magnus game. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a weird kid. 
if you talk to him, he likes, he's very loud. He likes making irreverent jokes. Mm. He's just a little cocky the way that he speaks and he acts. I didn't find it unusually weird. It was just Hans being Hans, kind of. So then he comes the next day. He yes. barely survives against Dominguez. No, and then actually, he the next day he played Firuja. Firuja, yeah. yes. And that was a bit weird as well, but he, I don't think he went very much into detail. Uh, no, but that interview was actually very dissected. Okay. Because that was the one where everybody... With started, the Queen G3 move. With the Queen G3 yeah. move, everybody started to think, oh, this guy can't play chess. He's just making things up, whatever the engine tells him. I mean, first of all, that's very clearly false. Mm. I mean, it only takes playing a couple of blitz games against Hans to know that the guy can play chess. He can see lines. He can calculate as well as anybody else. It doesn't... You don't really need to be a strong GM to give the lines in the post-mortem. I just like the players coming up and telling me their ideas. Like, what did you see? Uh, not with the expectation that they're going to blunder a piece every move. Just with the expectation that I want to know what was on your mind. When he came for that interview, he said a couple of interesting things. Like, he played Queen G3 on concept. Like, without calculation. That's what the, I got from it. That he played it conceptually. That he wanted an attacking game against Firuja. That Firuja does not defend well. I thought that was a good read. Uh, Firuja actually does not, in my opinion, defend as well as he attacks, which is normal of a young player. Uh, but I did find it strange that he evaluated some position as completely winning. And, I mean, not only was it not winning, it was probably losing, <laughs> but it didn't really matter to me. I didn't find it so strange because at that point of the tournament, Hans is an incredible amount of pressure. Mm. You have to understand that by this point, everything has blown up. There yeah. is no secret that he is being indirectly accused of cheating well it was still early but it's still it already existed yeah i mean he he knew that magnus didn't come up to the round after he lost to him but nobody officially knew the reason right and he had just been coming from a game so he was still fresh off like he might have been thinking about what's going on yeah but chess players are chess players are smart <laughs> and if, if if they love something it's a it's a it's solving a mystery right yeah. even if they're wrong but in this particular one, it all pointed to that. I mean, there was a small, uh, there was a small sector of people that thought it was because there was a mole in Magnus's team and they had stolen the press. This was the most they, ridiculous that was, thing. That was <laughs> obviously false. I mean, this was very obviously and, false. And I was surprised that strong players also propagated and knowledgeable people propagated this theory. Because it's so insane. Ridiculous. Because that's the thing. When you talk about knowledgeable people, even grandmasters sometimes are not knowledgeable about this at all. They're not like part of the world. They don't know the people. They don't know how a top team works. They don't know who you're hiring, how you're hiring, how you transfer files. They don't know any of these things. And suddenly they're accusing Hans of like having somehow ripped off. <laughs> no, I, I heard this from people that he like hacked Magnus's computer was a theory. I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, even if somehow you hack someone's computer or break into their hotel room, like Magnus wouldn't care. I mean, he would. That would like he wouldn't leave the tournament for that reason. You know, and the thing is, if I gave you a key to Magnus's room and his laptop, and let's say that he didn't have that position open, like he had just you just opened chess base, you're not gonna get anything. Out you're of you're like okay, good luck. Which variation is he playing today? Good luck. <laughs> I mean, you, you'll see like a, a database or like ten databases with like few thousand different files yeah you're all not, random and you have no idea what to look for. you have no idea even if you looked at it this morning you can find that file he probably looked at a ton of things that morning mm -hmm. so this this was all very very bogus so what what's next what could cause the Mag, uh, magnus such a reaction the only thing is that hans is somehow cheating now the extent or magnus got sick but we knew he didn't right like i knew he didn't most people knew he didn't uh 
this was a theory that was immediately quashed. Like everybody had seen Magnus up and about, and it was clear he wasn't sick. Yeah. Um, so at this point, we have a real idea that the main point is probably that Hans cheated. And everybody knows it. Uh, it became very obvious with the Mourinho tweet. It became very obvious that it wasn't any of the other possibilities. That people were going through a very thin line. That they were afraid of saying something that would get them into libel. And that lawyers were obviously already looking at this. There was no way for me to believe that lawyers were not looking at this already. Magnus's lawyers and Somebody's. potentially even Hans. Probably, yeah, I don't think Hans has lawyers not, not, at this point. But not, not at, at that this point, point but, not but Magnus for sure was already... Yeah. in touch with people. Probably Magnus was in touch with people. Probably other people were already getting in touch with, you know, probably St. Louis at this point had already contacted, like, well, what are we can do? What can mm -hmm. we do? Um, but it was clear that there was, that Hans was being thinly accused of cheating. Mm -hmm. What he was accused of cheating in was not clear. At this point, completely unclear. In the sink field, over the board, on chess.com, chess24, we didn't know. But the implication, because it's right after a specific game, yes. is that it was, and this is what Magnus pretty much confirmed later, Yes, that he found his body language weird. Yes, He thought it was weird how he easily dispatched of him in that game with the black pieces. Uh, so he suspected him of cheating specifically in that game. Actually, I, I, going back to the Frugia interview, um, this is not a theory I prescribe to specifically, but I have heard this. And and you mentioned that the Frugia game was the Frugia analysis and the and the game connected to it was dissected by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Some who know something, some who know nothing about chess, and are just you know uh, giving their opinion to the world. But I've heard this theory that the delay that was implemented after the Magnus game uh, messed up with Hans's system, mm -hmm. whatever it was, to get information relayed, and and that. Uh, this is a theory, of course, that assumes that he was cheating in the Singfield Cup and against Magnus, and that somehow this delay messed up with his system, and that caused the unevenness in the game, and also the unevenness in certain decisions, like the bishop d3 versus bishop e3 mm -hmm. mistake, right? He made a mistake at that moment. Uh, while, I mean, these are very similar moves, and and that that is part of it. Like, there was information that didn't fully get get to him in the right way, and that, that caused the confusion between different moves. And to me, this seems a bit outlandish, but I have heard this theory from reputable people. I mean, it's outlandish, but this is like, I think it's a case of trying to find something because there's data. I mean, if you look at the first three games that Hans plays in the Singfield Cup against Levon, against Schack, against Magnus, they're really great games. Mm -hmm. I mean, even against Levon, you put a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. He didn't like let him go too easily. Eventually, he let him go. Against Schack, it was kind of a mess, and then he won. Very nice. It was hard to win a mess against Chuck. And then against Magnus, that was a great game. I mean, even though he let him go, it was still a great game. I mean, there were a lot of good decisions. I analyzed this game recently, and there were a lot of really tough, good decisions that Black had to make. And then if you see the later games, there's the Firuja game is really cool. This Queen G3 stuff, and then he let, a, he let Firuja go. And after that, his quality decreases pretty considerably. I mean, he's kind of getting smashed against Dominguez, barely survives against MVL because MVL missed something. He loses to Wesley. He loses to you. But let's look at it from the other side, right? I mean, the guy that... The fact that he could show up and play chess at all is kind of amazing considering that there's this circus where he's at the middle of it and now he still has to perform against the best of the best. I was experienced that he simply does not have. 
Uh, so yeah, you could easily say, yeah, he played worse. Okay, but why did he play worse? Because his engine got disconnected or because he's in the middle of a bunch of drama? And like, what's what's the easier alternative here? It's all speculation. It's Actually, all speculation. I heard yeah. this also from the same reputable people. They were like, well, these are two different players. You see Hans in the first three, maybe four games. Mm-hmm. And then you see Hans in the rest of the games. And you, you just see a different player entirely. But I was like, well, I mean, I don't really like want to get into his memory. But if you see me in the first seven games of the candidates... And in the last seven games of the candidates, you see a different player. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I was cheating in the first seven <laughs> games. It just means that sometimes players play at different levels because there's a lot going on in playing well. It's and a I, lot of emotions and, and, and psychology. And so and much went on. I mm-hmm. mean, so much goes on, right? So it, it doesn't really prove anything one way or the other. Of course he played worse. He was supposed to play worse, and he played worse. Doesn't mean anything. Speak about the interview that you had after uh, the game against Dominguez. That was very passionate. His passionate plea that, yes, sure, I cheated online, but I did never cheat over the board. And, uh, you know, he addressed a lot of other points that a lot of people on the Internet was making about his accent and a lot of other things. How would you feel uh, his, his emotions and his aura at that point? You know, Hans is a very interesting person because he is both in some ways very off-putting by the things he says, the way he says it, the tone he uses. And at the same time, he's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. Like there is a certain charm about the way he says things and the, the, the things he actually says, especially when he apparently means them from the heart. Uh, that really captivates you. I mm-hmm. mean, that speech that he gave to me, to me was like, it was, it was tear jerking. I mean, mm-hmm. really like, come on, like, how can you not believe this guy? Um, the way that the interview happened was actually coincidental because he didn't want to do the interview. He didn't want to be embroiled with this anymore. But Really? Yeah. And then Nastya Karlovich reminded him that he has a contractual obligation to show up to a postmortem if he doesn't lose. So he had to show up. And he was... He, he actually made me unhook myself. You, you've been at the, at the board. Yes. So you know that you need to be unhooked yes. if you need to talk to someone privately. So yes. I got unhooked because he asked for it. And he, was, he told me, I'll do the interview. I don't want to do it, but I'll do the interview. But I don't want to be interrupted. He wanted to give his entire spiel without the producer cutting him short. And that's kind of what happened. We went into the interview. We started with the chess. We looked at the Dominguez game. He made some mistakes here, some mistakes there. He explained seemingly coherently what what happened in the game. And then he went on on what is now a very famous interview. And during the interview, you kind of feel like this guy is talking from the heart. Like, this guy is really meaning what he says. And at the same time, there's a couple of moments where he says things that, for me, credibly, immediately became incongruous. Mm-hmm. Like, he, for example, said, I cheated at 12 and 16. He didn't say exactly that. He said, I cheated tw- when I was 12 and then four years later or something like that. But the idea that he cheated at 12 and at 16. And then he almost immediately said that he just got banned from the Global Chess Championship by chess.com. And I'm like, wait a second. That doesn't add up. If Chess.com knew that you were cheating at 16, they would have banned you back then. And Well, well his, that happened immediately after his game against Magnus. So he played the game against Magnus, and then he immediately, that night, got, got banned by Chess.com. So, his account got closed. Right, but at this point, we don't know why or what's happening. Right. And only rumors, right? right. Like, do, is Chess.com and Magnus talking? Probably not, but we didn't know if they were. But that was Hans's argument. And that he, was his I think argument. Also, yeah. in your interview, he kind of alluded to that, like, are Magnus and Chess.com working together? Well, Magnus, Chess.com, Hikaru, and everybody else has, <laughs> like, at that point, had, like, a collusion to destroy his life, which that I don't think the is the argument, case. Yeah. 
I don't think it was the case that they had a collusion to destroy his life, but they did it inadvertently. I mean, it, again, let's assume that the guy is innocent. I mean, the amount of damage that has been done is incredible for something that we don't have concrete evidence. And you can flip the side, right? Like this guy is so obviously cheating that this needs to be exposed. I mean, those are currently the two teams um, and, and both have very valid points. And right now we've, we're trying to go through these points and we're doing it so badly, <laughs> I feel, in so many ways. Where do you stand? Where do I stand? Which team are you on? I don't, I don't like to think of myself as the team. I mean, especially while I was doing commentary, I was very careful of two things. First of all, not biasing my way one way or the other. And second, ever mentioning the word cheat. Mm. I never mentioned the word cheat yeah. during any of these commentary or during uh, any of the interviews. I let the players say what they thought of the drama. And like a lot of the MVL and Aronian things that they said, especially alluding to cheating, they provided on their own. I never asked them, what do you think of chess cheating? What do you think of cheating at the single cup? I was like, how's the drama? And they were like, A, B, C, D, and F. And okay, I, I can understand that. But now that a lot of things have happened and we're already a month after, uh, it, the circumstantial evidence that has gathered against Hans seems specifically on him having cheated over the board seems so strong that it's very difficult for me to ignore it. Mm. I, for me to say this guy cheated, I would myself need to sit down and go through the data. Uh, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I have other things in my life <laughs> and I don't want to sit there and go through every one of Hans's games. Now, a lot of people have done that and a lot of people have made very compelling arguments on like why this statistically doesn't correlate and using my own expertise and my own experience with these things, it does seem very likely that he has cheated over the board. Now, as I say that it is very likely, I am not here condemning him and saying he definitely has cheated. I did not say that. There's a lot of evidence that points that Hans has cheated over the board more than one time and that this is a strong and talented player that perhaps has used uh, some tournaments to leapfrog over other players. Now, am I sure of this? No, I am definitely not sure of this. Do I Have I met grandmasters that are sure of this? Yes, I have met grandmasters that have no doubt that Hans has cheated. Uh, how do I meet grandmasters that think that Hans has not cheated over the board? Less and less. There's less and less amount of grandmasters that I talk about this that think that, uh, that Hans is cheating is confined to online, and there's almost no one that I've talked to that is a grandmaster level that thinks that his cheating is confined to a couple of events of when he was 12 and 16. So, so a counterpoint. I was watching a video of Grandmaster Ben Feingold. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about, yeah, there's all these videos about random games that, that Hans has played, and Hikaru's analyzing them, uh, Naroditsky, Danya, is uh, analyzing them, we're analyzing them, this, uh, this French player, Yosha, yeah, exactly. is analyzing yeah. them, and all these people are doing this, and Ben essentially says, this is all bullshit, anything which is not a statistics-based approach um, is completely irrelevant, and just because Danya, this is pretty much verbatim, Danya analyzing three in the morning with a, a stockfish running for four seconds is you can't put any weight into that whatsoever. And I agree on the one hand. Yeah, it seems like a very sensible point. But what you've seen from whatever videos or whatever games that people have talked about has compelled you to shift your position somewhat. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I had given so much thought to because, again, it's a rumor kind of. So I don't want to like go and dig into 
each rumor and see how much truth of it there is. Because of what happened, Hans got put in the spotlight. And there's a, a lot of strange things. They're just strange. I mean, when strange things happen, you kind of try to figure out why. I mean, did this guy suddenly have a surge of power? Did this guy suddenly get good? And sometimes that is the answer. Sometimes you're just like, oh, yeah, this kid, you know, finally, it kind of finally clicked. And that happens to a lot of players where they're like, they're stuck on 2400, 2500 and for like a year. And they're like, oh, it clicked. And they're fine. They finally make their breakthrough. The thing about Hans is, is that his improvement seems strange. There's a lot of videos already analyzing that. I don't know how much you want me to get into that. But it is strange, and it is something worth looking into. And hopefully we find, we find useful tools that will help us in the future determine better whether a player is playing like a human or not. Now, when it comes to Han specifically, I, I really like, you know, like there's part of me. That I'm honest, like there's a, there's a part of me that wants Hans to be innocent, that, want, I, that I want to believe that this guy is a good chess player, that he's breaking through the ranks, and that he played one really good game of chess, or maybe three or four, and now he's getting put in this, in this shitstorm. It seems unlikely. Like, it just is. Like, his meteoric rise, then beating Magnus with Black, the way that he beat him, it is unlikely. I want it to be the truth. I want it to be the fairy tale story, but can you really believe the fairy tale? Probably not. Well, uh, still, this episode is probably going to come out a couple of weeks from now, so a lot of things might pop up in between. Alejandro, um, let's leave it on a high note for sure. <laughs> let's play a game. You, you and me? Against, no, no, no. Oh. You against Fabiano. We'll so definitely who, play against... Whose high note is going to be? <laughs> it's yours because you have three minutes oh against one minute Let for Fabiano. Let's see how this one is going to play out. Are you guys up to? All right, fine, let's go. I mean, I, I think I have like a very small chance of surviving this game, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. What? What? Let's one, do it. Let's one do minute it. is... Don't kill my owl. Yeah. What, what's the story to. about the, that owl? This owl? So yes. uh, one of my passions is to travel, and I travel with Yi. Uh, I travel with Yi pretty often. So this one specifically, we went to a trip last year to Oaxaca, Mexico. Absolutely love Oaxaca. Excellent, excellent city. We had... A lot of good food, amazing, unique food. Uh, very, very picturesque city, very pretty. And in one of the artisan uh, stores, we saw this beautiful owl. And we were like, we have to take it home. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of difficult to take home, but we managed. It was so wrapped in paper. And we named it. It's named Chapulina. 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 Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> Chapulin is those little crickets they eat in Mexico. Like, I think we had them yeah, yeah, with I've guacamole. Tried I've tried them. Yeah, yeah. And they're very prevalent in the Oaxacan we seen mm -hmm. so we just named it something like that <laughs> all right all right enough talk let's get to action fabiano i think you want to take that water out of that that might well, be a good idea you're right that one is going to spill chapulina stays but the water not so much all right good luck guys <laughs> disgusting how fast he plays oh. that also works that works that works oh, oh my god that's beautiful Tough game. Alejandro, thank you. thank you very much for joining us. Thank that, you for inviting me, guys. Have fun. That was great. Thank you. That was good. Kiss the boys goodnight. Kiss yeah, the homies we, goodnight. We gotta, we gotta give a shout out to all the homies and give them a kiss goodnight. Kiss, kiss the homies goodnight. <laughs>